Welcome. You are now listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Show with Roshan Lugani, Eric Olson, and Adrian Nicholson. This show is an exploration of ideas to help you work towards your ideal retirement. Roshan Lungani and Eric Olson are certified financial planner practitioners that serve clients across the U.S. They offer financial planning and investment advice through Arate Wealth Advisors, LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor, and securities through Arate Wealth Management, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC, and NFA. Get ready for the financial independence of your dreams. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Retirement Lifestyle Show. I'm your host, Roshan Langani, joined by your other hosts, Eric Olson and Adrian Nicholson again. And today we have a very special guest. Preeti Malhotra is here with us today. She is a real estate consultant, and we've been getting a lot of questions about how you can handle your real estate transactions during the quarantine, the stay-at-home orders, and how things are going. So we thought we would bring the expert on to help us. Preeti, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me today. I know we're all really excited about uh, about this and have a ton of questions uh, questions for you. But just to start out with, how is the uh, uh, quarantine and stay-at-home order? How's that been going for you? It's been going well. I mean, I was kind of blessed because... I had to prepare myself with technology starting January because I fell and I had to have knee surgery. So before that, I was pretty much prepared to stay at home, work from home and depend on technology to run my business. Okay. And for the listeners, uh, Preeti is my sister. So I will talk to you a little bit about her real estate credentials, but I was there when she hurt her knee skiing and, uh, uh, at first, I laughed because I thought she just fall, fell. I have to be honest. And then I felt bad about it when they had to bring in like the uh, medevac ski mobile people to lift her on a stretcher and carry her back in uh, into the into the ski house, I guess. Uh, and, and but she was a trooper. She paused for lunch before getting any medical <laughs> medical advice. Wow, where and, were you uh, skiing at? Uh, we went for my mom's birthday on a family trip to Pennsylvania. Oh, wow. That's nice. I, ski, skiing and snowboarding, they are a lot hard. I did that for the first time about a year or two ago. And when you're picking up speed, it, it can be super fast and super dangerous. But uh, it's, a, it's a lot of fun if you're good at it. But it's definitely tough sometimes. Adrian, full disclosure, she was... Um, on the bunny slope ski <laughs> lift in the middle of a lesson. <laughs> there was zero speed <laughs> at the time. So even the bunny slope can be that. <laughs> It was icy. <laughs> yeah, the you know, ice you, you know what else was funny? I wasn't there for this, but she was having, uh, she was with my wife, Steph, at the time. I think I was just chasing the kids around. But uh, the waiter said to them, I don't know why people over 30 even try to ski. <laughs> <laughs> That's a true story. Uh, so speaking of injuries, Eric, you're feeling better now uh, from your visit to the ER, moving yes. around well? Yes, today you got to get the stitches out and tomorrow we go on our backpacking trip if the doctor okays it. So oh, fired great. up about that. That sounds <laughs> wonderful. Good. And Adrian, you're staying healthy, no injuries? <laughs> no, no injuries. I'm really good. I'm excited. Yesterday, I finally got some sun. I went out to Leesburg to this brewing place called Vanish. 
with some of my friends and it was it was great they had a lot of food options a lot of drink options it was like pet it was pet friendly too so that, it was a it was a lot of fun to um go out enjoy the sun a little bit with my friends so it so was good you mentioned a pet do you i didn't know do you have a you have a dog or something uh no but they were just pet friendly it was like a lot of animals there okay a lot of seating it was it was really great to be out there okay it had to be nice to see everybody yeah, yeah, it was, it was, and it was a, it was a really great area. I really tucked away in Leesburg, really far out in the country. So it was really nice. Some of the viewing there, it was, it was really great. And you were all outside. Were you wearing masks as well outside, or just um, they didn't apart? require because they actually were pretty good about like spacing outside, and it was really open. So it it was really great. We brought some games too to play, and the food was great. It just had a lot of great options and live music, so that was a lot of fun. Great. So it's nice to see things opening back up. So I know we ha all have a lot of questions for Preeti. So um, let's let's start with that. So Preeti, at the beginning, I just want to ask, how has uh, how has uh, work been going, you know, being a, a real estate consultant during the uh, uh, virus and the pandemic, stay at home orders? How's it been? Have things slowed down? How have you adjusted? How have people adjusted? So it's been an adjustment. And the first couple of weeks um, when the stay-at-home orders were announced, everyone was kind of in a wait-and-see mode. But we were still working and we were relying on technology. We were having open and honest conversations with our clients. And when we would meet with them and we're still meeting with our clients, instead of six feet of distance, we're maintaining 12 feet of distance. And we're providing masks, gloves, booties, and sanitizers to all of our clients as well. And if we do an in-person showing, what we do is myself or one of our buying agents will arrive at the property a few minutes early, open up the property, um, make sure all the lights, everything are turned on. Then we will exit the property and have the buyers walk in and tour it themselves. And then we will talk on our cell phones. Like if I'm in my outside and they're inside. So that is a difference. Normally we would be in the property, tour the property together. And every um, firm, every agent, every team handles it differently. So the way we're handling it is we're just staying outside when the clients are inside and vice versa. And the lengthy conversations, which you normally have face-to-face, -face, we're having them over phone or then regrouping later on on Zoom and depending more on technology. So Preeti, are, are you also in the Northern Virginia area? Yes, we are in Virginia, Maryland, DC. Okay. And so one of the questions that I have had is just in terms of this phase, uh, and I'm sure it varies from place to place, but a seller's market or buyer's market right now? We are in a seller's market. Ex explain. It is very busy here. Even though we're in the middle of COVID, the rallies, we put one property on the market last Wednesday. We had a deadline for all of the offers on Sunday. We had five offers and the house escalated to 30,000 above list hmm. price. And to what do you attribute that? Lack of inventory. Hmm. Lack of inventory and very attractive interest rates. And uh, the interest rates, I understand the I think the inventory I also understand, but it's just a it's just a supposition. So what explains the low or the lack of inventory? We have more buyers in the market than we have sellers. And actually, I wanted to take a step back and and just have you for the listeners. can you can you explain the difference between a buyer's market and a seller's market? Oh, yeah. 
So right now we are in a seller's market. So for example, if someone has a home to sell and they put the price up, like I gave you that example, we received $30,000 above list price for the property put on the market last week. So right now we're in a market where a seller is able to sell the property in good condition and buyers are removing various contingencies. For example, a home inspection contingency or a finance contingency or an appraisal contingency. They're because they want to be competitive and they want to win the house of their dreams. And for the listeners that aren't uh, as familiar with real estate transactions, can you explain what the contingencies are that you just mentioned? So, for example, a home inspection contingency mm-hmm. is when buyers and sellers are purchasing a house, they have a ratified contract. That means buyers and sellers have agreed on each and every term in that contract. And if we have a home inspection contingency, a buyer can evaluate the property with a licensed home inspector. And what they can do is if they find any issues in the property, they can ask for a credit, they can ask for the seller to fix and repair, or they can exit the contract. So when we don't have a home inspection contingency, the seller has a sense of security that this contract is going to close and go to settlement. So right now, when you say it's a seller's market, if you have, if you have, um, if you're giving advice to someone buying a property with you, you're telling them you don't want to keep these contingencies in there because then they'll just say no to you because they they'll have more than one offer. Well, it depends who my buyer is. If I'm working with a first-time mm-hmm. home buyer, I definitely want them to keep each and every contingency and feel secure. Okay. In, and learn the process. And I don't want them to get emotionally attached to any Yeah, that's property. a really interesting point, Preeti. What are, what are some other considerations you have for some first-time home buyers? Since you said this is a kind of a seller's environment right now and it's very competitive. So it can be kind of very stressful and for first-time home buyers or a lot of research that goes along with it because this is their first-time home in a very competitive environment. This is not, I mean... I tell all my first time home buyers not to get emotionally attached and I'm not aggressive. I want someone to feel comfortable because all of our clients, they work with us for decades. I work with the parents, the grandparents, the children, and I don't want anyone to feel pressured, but at the same time, I want to explain it to them. So for example, the home inspection contingency, we can have it, but we can do it for one day. That means we just all have to work a little bit quicker faster and smarter to conduct the home inspection contingency, let our first time home buyer knows all the what's going on the property. And then they can make a decision where we can, again, go back to the seller to fix, repair, or Yeah, Those exit. are some great points. And are, are you also seeing some new trends around what people are looking for now? Because some of like the big things was always location, location, location. But now where people are staying at home, commute might not be a really big factor. They might be looking at other things like I want to really big backyard. Are there some other new trends you see buyers are looking in for this competitive environment? I think this is also because of the current environment and the weather. A lot of people want a pool in their backyard. I would like a pool in my backyard in the future too. So I definitely see that. <laughs> just staying at home with families or with children or it, and being at home, it's just another source of entertainment and exercise as well. And a lot of people want their home gyms because all the gyms have been oh, shut yeah. down and larger office space. So um, I've had someone say to me with uh, the pandemic, they their personal opinion, not an expert, just someone who's looking to buy a property, they think that the property prices will come down because of this. So they're saying they want to wait. 
Now, my personal opinion differs a little bit, but I'd love to get your, how would you respond to that question? So real estate is a local market. And right now in our local market, I have not seen prices come down. I have seen prices go up. I've seen competitive offers. Everything that we are working on is going above list price. And that is due to the lack of inventory, our location, and where interest rates are at the present moment. So you you don't see any slowdown. You And we started this by are you saying it's a seller's market, which would then mean that that buyer that's thinking about waiting, it's, it's probably not a prudent move. Exactly. I think anyone who's looking to purchase should capitalize on the low interest rates. We've had some buyers. Actually, I had a, a person who purchased last year with me, their first home. This year, they purchased their first investment and they were able to buy their first investment property within one year of purchasing the home because of the attractive interest rates. If the interest rates weren't where they are today, he would not have been able to purchase the property. And when we did the analysis, by the time he's renting, he's still going to be cash flow positive. That's great. And that wouldn't have been possible without the current Hmm. interest rate in the market. So uh, I want to come back to an earlier question that I had, which was about uh, what explains the low inventory? Is it that people are fearful of of prospective buyers coming into their homes and so they're not listing or what? Or is it that just the uncertainty about the economy leads people to feel less inclined to to move someplace and restart? Or why are fewer homes on the market than normally would be the case? I think it's a combination. I think our spring market which traditionally starts at the end of February and it's in Mar- and pushes into March, April, and May is going to be pushed towards June, July, and August. I think a lot of uh, some people who were going to put on the market, they wanted to wait and see what's going to happen. Then the people who are working from home and they were distant learning, they didn't want the traffic in and out of their home until they had more information of COVID, COVID-19, its effects, and how it's going to affect people as they enter and exit mm-hmm. their property. And the properties that have been moving, in my experience, are the ones that have been vacant. Again, that's my experience. But I did have some clients early on who were going to list their properties in March. And some of my clients who had their properties on the market in March, we pulled them off. And now we've just put them back on the market because they do feel more comfortable. Their children are done with the distant learning and they can leave their house with more ease and comfort. Got it. So, uh, and have you seen, um, you mentioned the vacant properties, that's because they're, no one's there. So they don't mind to traffic in and out. You have seen people just because of not wanting strangers walking in their house, delaying their, their sale. Correct. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, and have you seen on the other side, the, uh, for buyers that they're, uh, when I mentioned this, someone thinking the prices will go down, have you seen buyers waiting because they believe that? Or are you seeing buyers out there saying, well, inventory is low, so I better go out there and, and find something quickly? I've seen both types of personalities. And what our job is to do is explain and give them the information and support their decisions. So there are some people who want to wait. And there's some people who are moving forward and they are purchasing. You mentioned investment, uh, the client you had with the investment property. Are you seeing anything different in that space? Are investors reacting more aggressively or more conservatively or a a mix, a little bit of both, like the other side, buyers? 
So those are different types of clients. So for example, there was one property multifamily unit on the market, 1.9, it escalated to 2.4. There was another multifamily unit that we did see recently on the market for 1 million, it had eight offers the first day. So depending on the location, the price and the cash flow, investments are moving and they're moving quick. Right. So investors are not, um, they're not, they're not scared off at all by the pandemic or the virus. They're, they're in there. Yes. I mean, there are those investors who want to wait and they want to see what's happening in real estate, what's happening in stocks okay. as well. And they'll make their decisions. Okay. Um, go ahead, Eric. Yeah. So I'm thinking in terms of pricing. So this is, you know, we do a lot with in, in publicly traded securities and trying to estimate what's fair value and whether something is a, is a, it's a worthwhile time to buy a, a good company. Same thing with a house, you know, should, should sellers at this point in recognition then of this, the uh, fast pace and the, the numerous offers be starting with higher um, asking prices? I, what I recommend is always put it at fair market values because buyers know exactly what a property's worth and sellers do as well. And if it's priced fairly, we're going to get more traffic. We're going to have more buyers see it and it's going to escalate. Mm -hmm. And if it's overpriced, we're not going to get the traffic. So fair market values is, since both buyers and sellers know that, what bases do they use for that estimate? So we work on, uh, for example, co comparable properties, mm -hmm. the location, the size, square footage, what the property features, the age of the property. Mm -hmm. We take all those factors into consideration. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But if the pace of things is is moving quickly and it is a seller's market, does that put up, in addition to hastening the pace of offers and, the, and shortening the time of uh, the selling, has it put upward pr pressure on the prices in pretty much every case, because you were giving those examples of investment properties. Um, it was, it was, so in other words, let's use that one investment property and then, then we'll translate it over to residential. So it's 1.9 was the initial asking price, but people uh, were bidding against each other and it raised it to 2.4. Would you have said 1.9 based on comps was, was the fair market value or was 2.4? So on that particular property, and as you know, every property and every investment is unique. Mm -hmm. I feel that it was price low to begin with. Okay. So that was one of the things. I mean, and based on the comps and with investment properties, we look at things differently versus residential. We look at the cash flow. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So for the investor who did purchase it, it made financial sense for them to park their money and the income and the cash flow made sense. Mm -hmm. So then moving to residential there, despite the pace and the, 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 the seller's market, um, you're thinking that hasn't moved fair market value prices upward at all or not? It much? has moved it upward. And also well, the difference with, um, with residential, how we spoke about the home inspection contingencies, mm -hmm. we also have an appraisal contingency mm -hmm. for that, for the residential. So for example, if a property is 600,000, and it escalates to 700,000. And if a buyer has an appraisal contingency, the lender is also the buyer's ally. Mm -hmm. So we would make sure the property appraises at 700. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't appraise at 700, depending on how the contingency is written, the buyer reserves the right 
to renegotiate based on the appraised value of the property. Okay, got it. Mm-hmm. But there are people who are some who are removing appraisals because even if the property is a little bit above value, if they're going to look at living it and that's their dream home, it's okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I have another set of questions that has to do with more of the the broad theme of our of our show, which is retirement lifestyle. And so these are less um, questions that are of the moment and and of the market that we're in right now and more sort of general counsel that you might have for people who are thinking as part of their retirement lifestyle to uh, relocate. So Adrian or Roshan, or I don't want to preempt other questions that you might have that are still uh, relevant to the market that we're in right now. No, I think this is great. Let's let's uh, continue. Okay, so um, when there's a lot of, I would say, conventional wisdom that is, uh, retirees, you know, are, are exposed to in terms of the decisions that they ought to make uh, about their homes. And I'm thinking in terms of, oftentimes you hear people saying they're going to downsize rather than upsize. And then when I look at the homes that they're planning to downsize to, I think, well, it might be smaller in size and therefore a little cheaper to maintain uh, or less work to vacuum or whatever it is that you're thinking about. But it's not necessarily a cheaper home. And um, so there's, you know, there's some, I think, questions that are floating in people's minds around some of that. And then another uh, question is, in terms of just the design and style of the home. So when you have, to the extent that you've worked with people who have made that decision to relocate primarily because, hey, we're, this is part of our retirement vision, what sorts of motivations do they normally express to you? A lot of people who are looking for a different type of home when they're retiring, it depends on their hobbies and activities and lifestyle. Mm-hmm. But one thing I've seen, if it's a condo or a detached home, a majority of the people like one story living opposed to having the upstairs and the basement. Mm -hmm. And it depends on their hobbies. If someone likes gardening or if someone wants to be by the beach or someone wants to, you know, Mm -hmm. depending on the weather, the climate, Mm -hmm. so many different factors go in. But the one thing I have seen, whether it's a condo or a detached home, a lot of people who do choose to retire do enjoy one story living. Okay. And um, is there an age? So it's hard to summarize, but it is except for the one story living. So is, is there an age by which you would say people, you would advise people to make that decision because, you know, beyond that age, they just find change so hard or there's other sorts of obstacles that they seem not to be able to, to overcome? I think it's a personal decision. Uh-huh. It's a very personal decision that goes from person to person. So when you're seeing people relocate, then uh, is it, I mean, how, what's the, what are some of the, the kind of the predominant ages of the people that you're seeing? I, I, granting that it is a personal decision, predominantly what age group is making that transition decision? A lot of times people want to explore those possibilities when they're chilled, when they're done and they're empty nesters. Mm-hmm. So around the, I would say from 60s to 70s, mm-hmm. in my personal experience. Okay. So you're when you and when you see these uh, people in their 60s to 70s, that uh, are you seeing both uh, downsizing, getting smaller properties, and the opposite, where people are going out and just buying a bigger, maybe a dream house they always wanted to buy but had to take care of the kids so they couldn't afford. 
I haven't had that experience. Okay. Most of the experience I had in the 60s and 70s is downsizing, okay. less space, less maintenance, and they want to enjoy um, their life more. Okay. They don't want to be dealing with um, house maintenance. Maintenance. It's usually in the 40s and 50s where I see people wanting to buy their dream home. Okay. So then it's more condos or some sort of association-based um, housing where people will t- do the yard work or is it they just hire people to, to w- when you're saying they, they don't want to spend as much time <laughs> maintaining the home? So a lot of people do prefer condos, but I do have a few people who they enjoy gardening. It's very therapeutic. Uh-huh. And that's just always been a hobby of theirs. And now they have the luxury of time and they can enjoy themselves and enjoy their hobbies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting, Preeti. What do you see as far as um, first time home buyers that are a little bit younger? What are some of the properties they're normally interested in? What I kind of see is the first thing they look for is the investment value and being able to rent it out because it's such a new home that they're first buying. What are kind of some of the trends you're seeing there? Well, that's a great way that you look at it. Believe it or not, a lot of first-time home buyers don't look at it that way. And we try to educate them and explain to them that this is their first home. I wanted to make sure it's something that they afford. And I encourage them to look at the comps of what it would rent in today's current marketplace, what their current market is. And the hope is that when we get to house number two, we don't sell their first home, that we keep it and that that can become their first investment property. Yeah, that's a great point that you brought up being able to afford it because the first basis and what you want to start with is having that good credit score and then another good area to start with is having a great debt-to-income ratio as well and being able to take on this big purchase that you're you're doing at a young age. So that's a really great point. Exactly. And you brought up credit. Credit and debt-to-income, that's very important when we're going and learning about the loan, loan process. And Preeti, what, um, the comment you just made about first-time home purchase, hoping to turn it into an investment, do you ever have that... Um, for the retirees, uh, the people that are downsizing, do 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 they typically? You mentioned wanting to lower their work there, so that I would think probably they probably just want to sell it and move on. But do you ever have the conversation where you say, "Hey, well, this might be a good investment for you to keep," or are they so focused on? Are they not concerned about that level of wealth accumulation, mainly lowering stress? It depends. It depends on the client, and it depends on the property. Like we worked with um, some clients who did retire and they went to condo living and they sold their detached properties, but they held on to their townhouse properties uh, for various reasons and continued to rent them out and they're continuing to enjoy their rental income. Okay. But um, you don't, um, at that particular person, it sounds like they had rental properties already, correct? Correct. So uh, what, I, what I'm picturing is a the different conversation is a first time home buyer comes to you and says, hey, I'm buying my second home. And you're then saying, well, let's discuss the merits of keeping your, your first home as a rental. Do you have that same discussion with retirees where you say, okay, you want to sell this home, but it may be worthwhile to keep as an investment or um, is someone who's at that stage, if they haven't had rental properties, Maybe they don't want to. Do you push a little different? Do you approach the education process differently? I'm a big believer in keeping your real estate. So I always like to learn about what they own, Mm -hmm. what the value is, how much they owe, if they owe any, 
and what the rental income is, and then um, share all that information with them. Some people like that information and they want to keep their property. Some people are, uh, they don't want to have the hassle. Even though we explained they can hire a property manager, they just don't want to have the hassle anymore. Uh, And you mentioned mortgage versus no mortgage. I know, Eric, Adrian, and I, with financial planning for our clients, we'll have that discussion very frequently, how to uh, get the you know, best type of uh, mortgage rates and so on. Do you often see when someone's retiring, they want their mortgage paid off? Um, and just to simplify things, or are they open to all, all things? I know everyone's a little bit different. Is there any trend you see at all? So I can only say based on my experience, what I've seen is that they don't want the mortgage okay. because they've accumulated the wealth. So at that point, usually they're selling their property. They have enough to enough in terms of overall assets for their lifestyle. And they just say, let me get rid of this mortgage. No stress, no payments. Yeah. Correct. I Correct. see Eric. Eric likes that decision. Eric, what are you thinking right now? <laughs> the, the, the the inside joke there is, is that I tend to be I'm encouraging people to eliminate debt. So um, okay. <laughs> the um, so another consideration for some, and I would say a minority of our clients, but there are some, is uh, to make the retirement income equation work well. In some cases, we suggest they at least evaluate using a reverse mortgage. And so for that reason, there's a, a there's value in having a higher equity uh, buildup in a home that you own and live in. So f- for that reason, I would say, um, you know, uh, just to have more equity in the home, you, selling the first property allows you to transfer more of the equity from the first place than into the second place. But I've never really done the analysis and you're sort of getting me thinking here that maybe I ought to do the analysis as to whether or not they might be better off keeping that first home and renting it out and using that as a source of cash flow rather than a reverse mortgage. So, um, first of all, I, so I have two, two questions. First, I'll start with the first and, and just mention the second, which we can come to in just a moment. Do you have any experience with um, your clients talking about or, or um, asking for your counsel about how to, how to purchase that next home with a view to doing so with a reverse mortgage um, early in their, in their phase of living there? I haven't worked with anyone with those questions or with that perspective or that point of view. Okay. All right. So then let's come back. The the second question is about the decision to keep a property. They have to make the numbers work, even with a even if they have a property manager. So broadly speaking, what sorts of numbers are you are you having them evaluate as to that decision? If it makes sense to keep that property and rent it out. So first of all, is if to see if they have any type of mortgage and what that number is, Mm -hmm. then to see how, what the rental market looks and what type of rent we could um, demand in this current marketplace. Mm -hmm. So if they have a mortgage, then we want to make sure that the rental uh, amount is higher than the current mortgage. Then we have to factor in our taxes, our expenses, our maintenance, and see at the end of all of that, if we're still positive. And is there a, so the thing that I've heard some landlords, um, you know, or investment property owners talk about is the 
they have to take into account the vacancy uh, rate. So how frequently do they have someone transition out? And then how long does it take them to find a new tenant? And if that's, let's say, the average on an annual basis, the loss of maybe one or two months of rental income, then that, you know, that becomes, that has to be part of the equation. And then another element is, is the the home maintenance or the home repair costs and some cases, not all, but in some cases, renters don't treat property that they're renting with the same tender loving care that they might if it were their own. So do, what sorts of rules of thumb do you advise these investment uh, investment property um, decision makers about what sorts of vacancy rates they ought to assume and what sorts of repair costs they ought to assume? So for vacancies, depending on the location. Mm-hmm. So we do uh, evaluate that and we do, depending on the location, ask them when they're doing their numbers to allocate one to two months for vacancies. Mm -hmm. And for maintenance, depending again on the property and the property condition, we ask them to keep three to five percent. Is a rolling uh, fund that's available? Exactly. How much would you say that? I'm sorry, three to five percent of what? The annual income. Annual rental income. Okay. Annual rental income. And that, again, depending on the property. There's some properties where we the maintenance costs are next to nothing. There's some that are a little bit more depending on the age condition. And it also depends how well they kept up the property before we put it on the rental market mm-hmm. and how well they maintained it before we put it on the property, mm-hmm. on the market. Okay. So the rule of thumb, Preeti, that, that I have used with clients in terms of trying to plan their long-term budgets especially during retirement is to have an allowance for the that's based on the value of their home because they're living in it as opposed to the rental income. So on the value of their home, that's one to 2% per year on average of the value of their home. So using some of the numbers that you were giving before, let's say that in your area, it's a million dollar home. So I would say it, per decade, they ought to be thinking in terms of uh, you know, so one percent of that million would be a would ten thousand a year. So over a course of a decade, somewhere between one and two hundred thousand dollars would be in reserve for home um, improvements. That's everything from a new furnace, driveway, roof. Uh, you know, if they do any sort of home remodeling, anything like that. Do you think that that seems about right? As first of all, do you think that's about right in what you've seen? for homeowners, but then moving back to the investment, uh, the, the real estate investor, does that also seem like a, a reserve that they ought to keep in mind? That is a good reserve, but I couldn't, if I was doing it, for example, if someone had a property and they were making, let's say 2000 a month, so that's 24,000 a year, the 1% would be a bit low in reserves. As a well, as a function of the income, but not necessarily as a function of the the value of the product. Correct. Okay. Correct. I actually want to compare these real quick. So, if you're saying let's general rules twenty four thousand a year, they say you can make five percent on the uh, uh, on the real estate, right? Usually in income, so that'd be roughly a five hundred thousand dollar property. So, what you're saying is, as a rental property, you need to maintain about five percent of the twenty four thousand. A year, so that's about twelve hundred a year. And Eric, you're saying on this five hundred thousand dollar property, you would recommend maintaining five thousand a year, one percent of the overall value. 
Five I know we're comparing mm-hmm. rental versus right. living in your home. Yeah. There, there is a little bit of a, a difference there. So I just wanted to give numbers to it and uh, mm-hmm. to connect the dots with, I think you're giving two different examples. Yes. Oh, absolutely. So the first thing is um, my question slash interpretation is, I think it would be reasonable, Eric, to think that someone would spend more money on their home than on a rental property, Right. When someone's got a rental property, Preeti, tell me if I'm wrong, aren't they just trying to make it good enough to rent again? Carpet, paint, that kind of thing? Exactly. And also, we um, most of our rental properties, most of the investors, they're also putting warranties, which I'm sure homeowners also put various warranties on their properties as well and various insurances in place for their residential and their investment properties. Yeah. Can you explain that? What's the warranty? Oh, so for example, um, on your residential properties and your investment, your primary home, a lot of people will put a warranty on their property. So if they have a warranty, so for example, if one of the major systems breaks down, they would call one of the warranty companies, they would come out, assess the issue, fix and repair it. The homeowner or the renter would have to pay the first $100 towards the repair and then if it has to be repaired or fixed or replaced, the warranty company handles the issue. Oh, so that probably stabilizes then the cash flow planning for the real estate investor, right? Because they can say, well, then part of my budget is this warranty and I know I won't get hit with some big um, out-of-pocket surprise. Correct. Uh, and that's something that you, um, would it be fair to say you recommend that to you both buyers of both their own home and rentals is that something you typically recommend and on both sides absolutely i i recommend it for investors first-time homeowners everyone to definitely have that warranty on their property i have it on mine it has helped me and saved me lots of money uh, with lots of various repairs that of course we all know repairs come at the wrong time in life And Eric, I think you make a good point too, saying it stabilizes cash flow. So if you're looking at an investment property and you're really, you need consistent cash flows and income estimates to get, figure out how worthwhile it is. And if you can get this home warranty as a consistent cost, thus eliminating the, un, to a certain degree, at least the unexpected major expense, it can make the analysis a little bit more effective mm-hmm. on, the, on the property. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have one other thing I'm shifting a little bit, but we mentioned mortgages and interest rates uh, a few times, this low interest rate environment, making it a good time, uh, a good time to buy. At what point do you start looking at that with the um, buyer of a property? So I know a lot of your retirees that you're working with will buy it outright in cash. But if you have someone getting a mortgage is... uh, Right after they call you, do you tell them, hey, call the mortgage for person first thing to figure out what you can get? Or is that something you do after you've looked at properties and they know what they want to buy? Where does that come into play? Day one. Okay. So from their initial phone call, from their initial meeting, I tell them the first thing that we need to do is work on getting financing in place. Because that allows us to know how much money we have to put down, what we can afford, what the client can afford, what their goals are if it's a young couple and they've just been newly married. And hypothetically, if they're thinking about having a child, I want them to think, are they both still going to be working? Is one person going to stay home? 
you know, are we relying on both incomes or just are we going to buy the house on just one person's income? So in the future, they can decide for childcare or nursery or whatever their hopes and dreams are. Yeah, that's where I think the real estate and the mortgage planning process fits in really well with what what we do as financial planners. Mm-hmm. Well, exactly, because I think all of us want to set our clients up for success. Yeah, of course, and achieving those uh, financial goals is really important. You don't want one of your goals to be, I want to, you know, buy my first new home, and I, I'm really excited by that. But you don't want to have to sacrifice or push aside other financial goals you want as well. That that's where planning that financing out is extremely important so you can hit all your targets. Absolutely. And I think it's great when a lot of our younger clientele do work with a financial planner and they want their financial planner's advice when we do get approved for a certain amount. And this is going to be their monthly mortgage payment. And if it works for and with all their other goals that they have set aside for their life plan. Great. Uh, Does anyone have any questions, any final questions for Breezy? So well, I would just say, is there any sort of final counsel that you would offer someone who is a, a contemplating their sort of some key real estate decisions in the, either the early part of their retirement or the lead up to retirement? Is there anything that we, we haven't talked about that you think is important for them to keep in mind as they make decisions around this? I mean, if anyone is planning to retire, I think they should sit down with their financial planner, look at all of the real estate they own and look at what the debt is for and either refinance um, if they owe money or if they don't owe money and look at what their goals are for the next 10 to 15 years, Mm -hmm. whether they want to hold on to it and rent it out or sell it and or downsize. Yeah, we always love that advice to plan things out, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I think it's very important. <laughs> well, Preeti, thank you very much uh, for sharing all of your knowledge with us, or yes. I should say a fraction of your knowledge with yes, us. That's right. Uh, and uh, I've, uh, I mentioned earlier, Preeti's my sister. I have worked with her on both um, personal properties and investment properties, and we've been happy in all cases. So I really am happy to share what you know with our with our listeners. And uh, I want to transition us, Preeti, we'd love your thoughts and feedback on this too, on our uh, segment today, our last segment on the science of happiness. We like sharing things that will make people live their life a little bit, a little bit happier and help achieve their retirement goals. So for this week, I've found uh, an article uh, that we'll share in the show notes on Forbes called Nine Ways to Improve Your Quarantine Wellbeing. And uh, we are in quarantine, but I found that each of these nine things uh, are effective at all times. You just, uh, they touch on the fact that you might have more time to, uh, to spend on these things now that you're not commuting or and, and at home more. I'll share the article with all nine, but I'll, I've picked out one that I'd like to share with you because it goes a little bit against some of my personal thoughts and beliefs, and I'd love your feedback on it. I like the idea, but where they go with it, I'm not ex- exactly a fan of. They say savor life, which at all play- paces sounds pretty good. The suggestions on how to shave- savor life I like as well, which is sharing your experiences with another person. So if it's as simple as you took a walk and it was a beautiful day outside, when you get home and you talk to a call a friend, tell them about what a great uh, a great walk you had and what a beautiful day it was. Now, here's where it goes against my beliefs. They say if you're having a nice cup of coffee, they seem to suggest taking a picture of it and sharing it online. 
Why this goes against me is I've told all my friends, I'm very rarely on social media, I try to get better at it, but I tell my friends, if I ever see a picture of food up there on your page, I'm unfollowing you. <laughs> so, <laughs> but maybe I'm being proven wrong now and that just lets them live happier. So I'm wrong in this case. So I'd like to ask all three of you, have you done this? Um, I, I know you haven't seen the article because I didn't share it with you in advance, but is this something you've done in quarantine at all where you've just been able to enjoy little things a little bit more? Yeah, Roshan. I mean, I feel targeted when you say that because yesterday <laughs> when I went to the brewery, I took a picture of the drinks I had and the food there and posted it on social media. <laughs> so that's right down right down my lane of sharing my experiences. I, I guess. You know what? And I'm the wrong one in this case. I, I As I told you, I wasn't on social media, so I didn't see it. So I'm still following you. <laughs> it's uh it's more of a i think also like a recommendation thing where people yeah. say oh oh where were you oh i went to uh this place you should come join me next time it was a great time i guess Check it out. sharing experiences but i like that that's fun great but yeah they say that sharing that picture and like i said i think i'm admitting i'm wrong so i'll continue following you i just won't share my own pictures of food but <laughs> you get to relive the experience just like you said because you share that picture like a recommendation then someone reaches out to you and you get to tell them how great it was and that you can you then can go out there again together preeti uh eric anything that you've been able to savor during this time or just in general really uh to help enjoy and experience a little bit more Preeti, how about you? I like the slower pace of life. I feel like I can enjoy time with my children. My daughter is home from college huh. and her semester will cut short. And I've been enjoying, uh, because I'm not commuting as much, just otherwise I feel like I was always on the go, 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 go. And I never took the time just to just pause and have those valuable conversations. And now I'm going on a walk every day, every night with my kids, which I enjoy as well. Hmm. Uh, in my case, I, we've been able to enjoy a number of things, but I've been doing so many home projects. So it's been, in that sense, I've been trying to just learn uh, nonstop uh, projects, you know, checking things off, done, done, done. But um, I do have a suggestion for you, Roshan, which is an in-between position uh, about sharing everything, let's say, on Instagram. So uh, one is this little app called Marco Polo. And so you essentially create a group with whom you share. So rather than broadcasting it to the entire universe of everyone who's on your Facebook or Instagram feed, it's just much more targeted for a certain group of people that you would want to share with. So if Roshan is, if part of it is, is you just don't want the world necessarily peering into the, all of the details of your life, this is a way to limit the audience somewhat. Yeah. I guess my my issue is I normally don't care what someone else eats <laughs> when it's a food picture. Okay. Uh, well, here then I want to turn you to to which I I probably have uh, three people that I follow on Instagram, but one of them is a, there's a shout out to Smitten Kitten. Okay. Smitten Kitten is uh, has got these food pictures numerous food pictures that will just make your mouth water so much you'll it will it might change your outlook i will then care about what is eaten <laughs> exactly. I, I i will open my mind to pictures <laughs> online after after this uh but i do like the under uh the underlying uh advice they're giving is just savor the moment uh stop and smell the roses and now you have time to do it mm -hmm. 
So thank you very much to all of our yeah, listeners. Preeti, thank, thank you, you for joining us. Preeti, thank you very much. I, yes, Eric, please continue. I'll let you continue first. <laughs> thank you for having me today. Yeah, and to all of our listeners, we will share Preeti's information in the show notes so you can reach out to her directly. You have our information. It's also available in the show notes. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Retirement Lifestyle Show. We hope you find it helpful. Please let your friends know. Give us five stars and uh, send us questions. We'll have our Ask the Expert segment next week again with questions from, uh, uh, from some of you. Thanks again, and we look forward to speaking to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Show. If you found this show helpful, gained knowledge, or enjoyed the time you spent with Roshan, Eric, and Adrian, tell your friends and leave us a five-star review. This will help others discover the show. To access our show notes, download any of the tools mentioned in today's podcast, or to ask us a question, go to retirewithroshan.com. That's retire with Roshan. R-O-S-H-A-N dot com. All opinions expressed by podcast hosts and guests are solely their own. While based on information they believe is reliable, neither Arate Wealth nor its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, nor do their opinions reflect the opinion of Arate Wealth. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and should not be regarded as specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. Finally, our music is The Chance by Jason Shaw and Audionautics. It's part of the YouTube audio library and it's licensed under a Creative Commons license. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.